All right, good morning. Uh, if you don't know me, and many of you don't, because I'm not a big deal here, but my name is Colin Coates. And I went through um, the apprenticeship program that I think everyone's probably heard of by now. I went through the apprenticeship program some time ago, and it was amazing. If you're thinking about going through it, I'd go through it. Uh, at the end of the apprenticeship program, they said, hey, you guys want to preach in the summer? We're all like, sure, yeah, we want to preach, you know. And then they give us passages, and at least I was like, no, I don't want to preach, you know. Uh, hey, you want to preach on two people who lied to their pastors and then dropped down dead in Acts? No, you know. You want to preach on David and Bathsheba? No, you know. Well, that's what I'm doing this morning. No, uh, I, I was very happy, very honored to be here preaching as I got into the story of David and Bathsheba. I was like, wow, this is awkward to be the first time I preach here, but we're going to do it anyway. I'm up here. Um, I'm married to Brenna. Uh, if you know Brenna, we've got two twin boys, Grady and Glenn, and then another on the way in September. So that's me, and that's, that's our family. So, um, all right, we'll jump right into it. I think that as I was preparing the sermon, I think that I know probably the worst nightmare you've ever had. Literal nightmare. Go to sleep, have a nightmare. Not in the category of a demon chasing you around your house, not that kind of nightmare, a different kind of nightmare, but a nightmare nonetheless, the kind you wake up from heart racing, thanking God that it wasn't real, right? Like, oh, this is my bed, that wasn't real. Okay, I was asleep, it was a nightmare. Um, it might have gone something like this. You are in the grocery store, you're in HEB, you're on the cereal aisle, trying to pick out one of a thousand different cereals that are all just slight variations of each other. Um, you're there surrounded by people, right? It's a nightmare in and of itself. It's Sunday afternoon, you're at the grocery store, and you're just surrounded by people, and you're trying to pick out cereal, and then all of a sudden, it hits you, I am absolutely head-to-toe buck naked right now in the grocery store. Has anyone ever had this? I've had this dream multiple times <laughs> in my life. Not necessarily the grocery store. I had it like, I've had it in class where so I'm 29, apparently I'm still scared of high school. I have it in math class, the teacher's about to hand out a test, and I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm naked. I have nothing on. And no one's noticed, right? I got out of my house, my parents didn't say anything, walked through a sea of people, said hey to my teacher, halfway through class, I'm naked, no one knows, right? Um, but all of a sudden, I'm totally exposed, vulnerable, everyone sees way more of me than, than I feel comfortable with and they definitely feel comfortable with, and I am now, I'm caught, right? I'm caught. I, I don't know if you've ever had this dream. Um, I've been trying to ask, but you, you can understand that kind of nightmare, that, that, oh my gosh, everyone can see me. I'm totally vulnerable. I'm totally exposed. I'm caught. What do I do? What do you do in that moment that you are just totally caught? Maybe you've never had that dream. Um, you probably will now. You're welcome. Um, uh, but you know the fear. I mean, this is why one of the most iconic, famous scenes in a horror movie is from the movie Psycho. Uh, woman showering. Murder comes in. Worst time for someone to break in your house, right? Shampooing your hair, totally naked in a shower. Um, this is why one of my college roommates, he showered just with the see-through uh, liner, not a shower curtain. Weird, right? That's how he showered, because he was terrified of someone breaking in in that moment, you know? Um, as if that would help, you know what I mean? Like, oh, I caught you at the door. Like, what are you going to do, you know? Uh, you're naked. You're dead, you know? Um, this is a deep 
fear, not just physically, obviously, because no one's actually afraid of going to the grocery store naked. It's probably not going to happen. Um, but there's something big there, I think, deep in the human heart, uh, fear of being just completely exposed, being caught for who you really are, being known and seen for all of you, not just the image you and I aggressively protect, you know, and project to other people for who we are, you know. Um, when we are caught, what do you do? What do you do? Where do you go when you're just, you're just caught? Or maybe you're going to be caught. Exposure is pending. You are vulnerable to being known far more than you want to be known. What do you do? Where do you go? The story of David and Bathsheba shows us what we are inclined to do in those moments when we're caught, when we're exposed, or when we know we're going to be. It shows us what we're inclined to do. It shows us what we often do, and it shows us what we, what we should do when we're caught and when we're exposed. So let's stand uh, for the reading of God's Word. Uh, This is a reading from 2 Samuel, uh, various verses in chapters 11 and 12. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Jaob and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rahab, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Elam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself, from her uncleanliness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Jaob, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Job said Uriah to and Job sent Uriah to David. In the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. David said to the messenger, thus, say, thus shall, shall you say to Joab, do not let this matter trouble you for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And the Lord sent Nathan to David, 
He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat the morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put, your, put away your sin, and you shall not die. This is the word of the Lord. All right, you may be seated. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can sit here, um, be silent, and receive from you, and receive your word, and ultimately receive grace through your word as you speak to us, as you address us. And I pray you would do just that through your word and through um, this sermon. And through this story, in Jesus' name, amen. So the book of 2 Samuel, where we find this story, this infamous story of David and Bathsheba, is a fast-paced book, okay? I'm going to try to, obviously, we're not going to sit here and read it. Um, it is a fast-paced book, 2 Samuel. It's First and Second Samuel. Um, it moves quick. It's action-packed. It blows through stories. And what First and Second Samuel is doing primarily and ultimately is highlighting and focusing on leaders of the people of God. People like Saul, people like David. Second Samuel is primarily about David. And as I said, it is, it is quick paced. It is fast. It's action packed. It blows through stories and it is focusing on David. And then all of a sudden, in chapters 11 and chapter 12, it drastically slows down. Okay? It's kind of like you're riding along in a car, you're texting in the passenger seat, uh, and all of a sudden, boom, you hit the brakes because yellow light at the last second. Okay? And then all of a sudden, you're paying attention, you're awake right? That's what chapter 11 does. You, you can kind of start to tune out until then because it's, it's fast-paced. I get it. It's fast-paced. It's David. It's nothing, almost nothing but positive about David until chapter 11. It's the complete opposite. It is slow. It is awkwardly over-detailed, and it's almost nothing but negative about David. Now, there's one consistency. There's one consistency in all of 2 Samuel with this story and everything else is that it's about David, it's about David. The uh, 2013 movie, The Conjuring, it's a horror movie um, about a witch who, when she lived, she would deceive or deceived a mother to sacrifice her children. Dark, diabolical, scary. 
And now they, this witch haunts this house. A family moves in, and she starts to haunt the family and haunt the mother to deceive the mother to do the same thing, to sacrifice her children. And I assume when they sat down, they said, okay, what do we name this witch? What do we name this woman that signifies how dark and scary she is, how diabolical, how deceiving? What name will make the hairs on the back of your neck stand up? You know what they named her? Bathsheba. Bathsheba. Out of all names that they could name this woman to indicate something scary, deceiving, dark, and diabolical, they think, well, of course, Bathsheba. And they got it wrong. They got it wrong. If anything, they should have named that witch David. Because the story is about David. Bathsheba shows up and then essentially just disappears. If anything, the Bible actually goes out of its way to say something positive about her, that she is a worshiper and a believer. And she was preparing herself for worship during these events. This story is about David, and I can prove it in, in verse 1. Uh, the, the author, all positive about David, and then chapter 11, verse 1, takes out this huge red flag and says, In the springtime of the year when kings go out to war, David stayed home. When kings go to war, David's a king. David should be at war. That's what he should be doing. He stayed home. The author wants to very quickly say, we've got a big big problem on our hands with David. When he should be at war fighting for his people, um, he's at home enjoying the securities, the luxuries, the amenities of being king. Just hanging out while his people, while other people fight for the people of God, while other people make themselves vulnerable. So here's the story. David is at home. Uh, He is walking around on his roof, and he probably overlooks a lot of the city, and he sees this beautiful woman named Bathsheba um, bathing. The Bible says she's, she's beautiful. So he sees this bombshell bathing, totally nude, totally exposed, um, and he inquires of her. He sends people out to inquire of her. I'm sure something harmless. Hey, what shampoo do you use? Uh, your hair looks phenomenal. Um, something like that. He sends people to inquire of her, maybe, hey, is, is your husband at war or is he home? Right? Choirs of her, maybe finds out that her husband is at war. Um, and then rather than fighting for Bathsheba, hey, I just want you to know where you're bathing is it's exposed to public view or it's exposed to my view. Maybe let's find a new thing. Maybe I'll just build you a, a shower because I'm king. I could probably make that happen. Um, Rather than fighting for her, he capitalizes on her exposure. He capitalizes on the fact that she's vulnerable and caught. You know, whether she's aware of this or not, we don't really know if Bathsheba knows, but she is caught, maybe unaware. And rather than David fighting for her, he capitalizes on her. He, the Bible says he takes her. Okay? He takes her, a couple glasses of wine, she runs out before the sun rises in the cover of darkness. No one has to know. Maybe there's some speculation. We went to go talk to Bathsheba. She was showering when we went over there. It's kind of awkward. And then she comes over, right? But under the cover of darkness, no one has to know until Bathsheba, with three words, creates the biggest nightmare of David's life. David, I am pregnant. In other words, David you are going to be exposed. You are going to be laid bare before 
the nation and the surrounding nations and everyone in Waco in 2018 that reads this in the Bible. You are going to be completely exposed. I am pregnant. This was a match that lit a fuse of a ticking time bomb. Not, not really a ticking time bomb, just a bomb. Just a bomb, because this is the, how the story goes. That's basically the first couple of verses. The rest of the story, David is on a te- desperate, frantic tear to cover what he just did, to make sure no one could possibly know. So this is what he does. He calls Uriah home from war. Uriah is one of David's 30 men. He is like this elite special forces warrior, and he calls him home as if that's a good idea in the middle of war. Let's call the Navy SEALs back home, right? He brings Uriah home, and he thinks, here's what's going to happen. Uriah is going to come home. It's a relief. He's not on the battlefield anymore. He hasn't seen his wife in a long time, and he's going to go home, and he's going to be with his wife, and then she's going to conceive. Congrats. We're pregnant. Bathsheba will just have to lie to him and the child for the rest of her life that uh, Uriah is not the daddy. But that's what will happen. We'll bring Uriah home. Now the problem is, is David underestimates Uriah. Look at verse 11. This is Uriah's response in verse 11. Uriah said to David, the ark in Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. In other words, Uriah says the ark of God is, in a sense, vulnerable and exposed right now. Israel and Judah are vulnerable and exposed right now. We are at war. That means the people at home are vulnerable. My buddies, my warrior friends are out right now in the open field, vulnerable, exposed, and I'm supposed to just go enjoy a meal and enjoy my wife and enjoy luxury right now? I can't possibly do that. I identify with reality. Unlike David, he says, there's no way I can do that. So he doesn't. So David says, okay, I got to get Uriah out of his right mind. I'll get him drunk. So he gets Uriah drunk. Uriah still won't do it. Uriah is somewhat out of his right mind, but he's not so insane in that moment to forget about everything going on. Everyone's exposed. I'm not going to sit here and enjoy security. So David thinks, okay, um, she's still pregnant. She's going to have a baby. Whose baby is it? Uriah is going to know it's not his baby. Um, Kill him. Just kill him. I I just got to off him. So this is what he does. He writes a letter. He writes a letter to Joab, leader in the army, verse 15. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. Make it look natural. Make it look somewhat normal. So he writes this letter, and he gives it to Uriah. Uriah is holding his death sentence. As he travels back to war thinking, okay, good, I'm going to get to go back and, and, and hook up with my buddies and keep fighting. And, and all the while he has this letter in his pocket he's carrying that is his death sentence. It's his, it's his sure death. And then he gives it to Joab, and I don't know when Joab reads it. Maybe he just opens it right then and Uriah is standing there waiting for, like, get out of here. Joab's reading, make sure Uriah dies. Make sure he dies. So this is exactly what happens Joab fulfills this. Uriah dies along with some of his buddies, along with other soldiers. David doesn't just 
in a way, indirectly murder Uriah. There's innocent bystanders who die with Uriah. A lot of blood is spilled at the command of David in order to cover David's sin. This is, this is 60 minutes worthy, diabolical, dark, scary, Hollywood's going to make movies about it. This is, this is a dangerous dude right here, David. A lot of people can die. It's not a big deal to make sure that I'm covered. So what's going on with David? What's going on in his mind? Because the David you and I know, we almost doubt that this is him. Is this, are we sure this is David? Because the David I know is the complete opposite of this. What is going on? What is going on in his mind and his heart to be able to do something like this? Like, I can almost get that he sleeps with Bathsheba. I can almost get that, like a lapse in judgment. But my gosh, to just start killing off your own people. This is scary stuff. Well, the author gives us an insight in verse 25. In verse 25, the author says, David said to the messenger, this is his response. He gets message back, hey, Uriah's dead. The plan's accomplished. And this is what he says. Thus shall you say to Joab, do not let this matter displease you. More literally, don't let it be evil in your sight. Don't consider this a thing to displease you, to discourage you, to be evil that we just made sure Uriah was killed, for the sword devours now one and now another. People die. Uriah was probably going to die. We all know how insane that dude was, you know, kamikazing everywhere on the battlefield. He was going to die, you know. Um, people die in war. Don't let it upset you. Don't let it discourage you. Just press on against the city. Keep fighting. And then at the end, he tells the messenger, encourage Joab. Encourage him. What? What can you imagine? I mean, what is going on? We don't know. The text really doesn't say how David justifies all this. What's going on in his mind? It's not an information problem. It's not like if you showed up to David and said, hey, hey, you know that murder is wrong. And he's like, oh, really? Call off the plan. Hey, you know that sleeping with Bathsheba is wrong, right? Are you serious? I didn't know. It's not an information problem. I mean, there's, there is mental gymnastics going on in his mind and his heart to figure out how to justify this in, in, in order to be able to say, don't let it be evil in your sight. Don't let it displease you. It's okay. It's okay. Maybe he just thinks, I'm just speeding up the course of natural events. Uriah was probably going to die. Some of his buddies were going to die in war. What I've done, all of this sin, all of this evil, I didn't really even change anything that was going to happen anyway. I mean, honestly, Uriah was probably going to die, and I was going to be the hero to step in and marry Bathsheba and, and, and have kids with her anyway. It was probably going to happen just like this, so who really cares how? I don't know if that's what he was thinking, but that might be some, some, some way, I think. In, in the verse, verse 27, the author says, remember how David said, don't let it displease you? This is how the text reads in verse 27 at the end of it. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Don't let it be evil in your sight. Everything David just did is evil in the sight of the Lord. Total opposites. Total opposite mindsets. Um, opposite uh, heart condition. Opposite way of thinking about everything going on. The, the, the text wants to make it real clear. David thinks it's all okay and the Lord doesn't. David thinks uh, it's all under control and the Lord thinks it's a complete mess. David thinks it's not evil, it's okay. The Lord thinks it's evil, diabolical, dark, and scary. Now, here's what we can't miss. 
Here's what we can't miss about what David did. In the first four verses of chapter 11, we get the episode with David and Bathsheba. He brings Bathsheba over, and he gets her pregnant. And we can almost get that. Like, if that's all that the story said, log it in our minds. Okay, David had a lapse in judgment. I get it. He saw this bombshell taking a shower, temptation. He went for it. It's over. Okay, he's a sinner. He's a sinner. But that's only the first four verses, and then we're done with it. But that's really all we ever remember about this story. It's the next 23 verses that everything gets unbelievably worse. And here's what we can't miss about it. It is in David's attempt to cover up the first four verses that everything goes completely bonkers, completely insane. I'm not saying that what he did with Bathsheba is insane. It is evil. But it's interesting that precisely in trying to cover up his sin, he shows himself to be a bigger sinner than he thought. In the very attempt to appear righteous before other people, to appear like someone who would never take Uriah's wife, who would never do that, in all of those attempts to appear righteous, he makes sure that we all see how unrighteous he is. In his attempt to appear and look like he has it all together, I'm King David after all, I got it all together, he shows himself to be a bigger mess than he probably thought and that we sure thought up until this point. None of us, none of us. Listen, most of us will make it to the end of our life without sleeping with someone who's not our spouse and especially not murdering their husband. This is bad relative to just human life. We would have never guessed that this was possible for David. We would have never guessed that these kind of intentions, diabolical motivations and actions could come out of him, but that's exactly what we see, and it's all under the umbrella and motivation to look righteous, to cover himself, to manage his own sin. We can't miss that. Sometimes, oftentimes, the way we try to cover our sin makes everything worse, makes everything exceedingly sinful. This is why oftentimes this is what we remember with scandals. The movie Spotlight, if you've ever seen that, came out a couple years ago. The movie Spotlight is about the uh, scandal in the Catholic Church of priests abusing, sexually abusing children. Hundreds, thousands of priests, I think. So the movie Spotlight, the, the reporters at the Boston Globe did a massive um, uh, investigation and, and uncovered it all. And these priests uh, would be moved from parish to parish and church to church, and they'd be put into you know, mental health therapy and then put back in the line of duty. It was this ingenious cover-up by the Catholic Church. The movie Spotlight is ultimately and primarily not about the abuse itself, but about the cover-up. A lot of times it's the cover-up that can make things exceedingly worse, and it's the cover-up that we actually remember. If David, if David can do this, and if David has this in himself, how much more are you and I? I mean, it's not like we're talking about Ted Bundy. Or, well, it's Ted Bundy. I'm no Ted Bundy. You know, I'm no Charles Manson, all right? It's David. Most of us would, would want to be a quarter of the man David is, a tenth of the man that we see in David. If David, if this can be David, if this is in David, if David can do this, how much more you and I, how much more can you and I not only have this sin in us, act in this way, 
but also have this inclination to try to cover it up at all cost, to stop at nothing, to cover it all. This is our natural inclination when we are caught, when we're caught exposed, vulnerable, when we're about to be caught, it's to cover ourselves, and ultimately, in doing so, we show ourselves to be worse than we thought. We show ourselves to be more sinful than we thought. We might not see our sin. We might be blind to it or we cover it in a way that we forget about it. Other people might not see it, but the Lord sees it. The thing that David had done was displeasing to the Lord. So the Lord goes after David. Moving into chapter 12, the Lord goes after him. He sends Nathan the prophet. Nathan tells this parable. David, there was this rich man who had everything. He had everything. And there was this poor man who had one lamb, and he cherished that lamb, and he loved that lamb, and he cared for that lamb, and he fed that lamb, and he loved that lamb. That's all he had. That's all he had. And this guest comes into town, and the rich man is supposed to host this guest and feed the guest. And so the rich man, rather than just taking one of his thousands of lambs, he takes everything the poor guy has and gives it to the guest. Nathan says, David, what should we do about this guy? And the Bible says that David was angry, righteous anger, moral outrage, a sense of justice. How dare the rich man do that? Kill him. Kill him. He took a lamb. Yeah, I know. Kill him. Pay it back fourfold and kill him. Nathan says, David, you are that man. You're the man I'm talking about. I mean, he took a lamb, you took a man's wife, and then you took his life, and you took the lives of his buddies, and you manipulated people to lie about all of it. David, you're the man you're angry at right now. You're the man that you wish dead. You're the man, and then boom, all the lights turn on for David. All the lights turn on for David, and he realizes, <laughs> he realizes who he is, He realizes what he's done. He's completely exposed to himself. Undeniably, can't deny it. I am far less sanctified than I thought. I am a far more, I'm not, sinner, sinner does do it justice, but we have to just load on the diabolical, dangerous, scary sinner with intentions and motivations and abilities to do far worse than I ever thought imaginable. As soon as David is exposed to himself, as soon as David realizes it, look what he says in verse 13 of chapter 12, I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against the Lord. No doubt he sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah and a ton of people, but the primary ultimate focus is I've sinned against the Lord. The law of God did its work on David, crushed him, crushed his heart. I've sinned against the Lord and immediately, this is the I think the the wildest part about this whole story, immediately the rest of verse 13, and Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin, you shall not die. Look how hard David worked to cover his sin when covering was free all along from the Lord. Look how hard he worked to atone for his sin, to to cover it and manage it and deal with it himself and justify it and figure out a way to, to explain it off. It's okay, it's not really sin. When all along he could have just stopped frozen in his tracks and come before the Lord, admitted, I am a sinner and I've sinned, free pardon. I've put away your sin, David. You're not gonna die. 
I've completely put it away. Only we are surprised by our sin. Only we are surprised by our lack of sanctification to such a degree that it freaks us out and we try to cover it. Act like it's not real, it's not there. But the Lord isn't surprised, he doesn't blink. He's not surprised by our sin, he's not surprised by how diabolical we are and we can be. And he doesn't waver in his love for you. And he didn't waver in his love for David. He, didn't, he doesn't waver in his love for me. I'm the one surprised, not him. The Lord provides covering. The covering David was working for, the Lord had for him, and the Lord provided for him. David, I've put away your sin. I've put it away. The sin that you're working so hard to put away yourself. So where's the Lord put his sin? Well, David marries Bathsheba, takes Bathsheba as his wife. Their child dies. There's a lot more to this story. There's consequences for his sin. But they have another child named Solomon. Maybe heard of him. David and Bathsheba have a little boy named Solomon. And from Solomon, the line continues until a little baby boy named Jesus is born. From the line of David and Bathsheba, Jesus is born. And Jesus from heaven carries his own death sentence. Just like Uriah carries his own death sentence, but he does it willingly, he does it knowingly. Put me on the cross, and I will spill my blood to cover the sin of my people. I will spill my blood to put away the sins of my people as as diabolical as they might be, as scary, dangerous, dark as they might be. I'll spill my blood and I'll put away their sins so that you will not die so that you will live your sin and my sin is put away on Jesus so that we could be covered in his righteousness. So what do you do when you're caught? What do you do when you are exposed, you know you're going to be exposed? Like David, we just stop. We just stop say, there's no covering that I can find or create that will cover me, that will atone for my sin. Covering is with the Lord and it's been taken care of at the cross. And at the cross, I'm covered and my sin is put away. As bad as you think you are, grace has the last word. I've sinned against you, Lord. Grace is the last word. Your sin has been put away. One preacher puts it like this. The gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Amen.